listeners, welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy, but your host for today's episode is none other than Andy Steiger. Join Andy in a conversation with ER doctor Quentin Jennis as they explore maintaining unshakable faith amidst the chaos of the emergency room of life. How do we keep our faith when tragedy strikes? Through personal stories, they delve into the challenges of upholding faith during medical crises and discuss the ethical depths of viewing patients as multifaceted individuals. Genesis' firsthand experiences of suffering reveal how spirituality can bolster resilience, providing a unique perspective on faith, hope, and compassion as we care for those in need. Before we get to that, I got to let you know, Launch 23 is coming up. You've heard us talk about it. September 17th, 12 to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time at Gracewood Manor in Linden, Washington, United States. For more information, head to apologeticscanada.com slash events and check out the launch event. Once again, the AC Leadership Summit is well on its way, October 27th to the 29th. Join us in the beauty of BC's coastal mountains as we engage in conversations all around leadership. The Leadership Summit seeks to bring together aspiring Christian thought leaders from across the West Coast for an incredible weekend of networking and equipping. This is an opportunity for young professionals and student leaders aged 19 to 30 to meet one another and grow together as Christian leaders. This year, we'll cover topics such as what are my leadership strengths and weaknesses? What is a thought leader? How do I grow practically as a leader? For more information, head to apologeticscanada.com slash leadership dash summit dash BC. And we hope to see you guys there. Registration is open right now and it will go fast. So make sure you apply today. That's all for me. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, and welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger, and I am joined today with a special guest, Quentin Jennis. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm happy to be here. It's great to be with you. We are in downtown Vancouver, or Vancouver, downtown-ish. Close to downtown. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're at a lovely church that has uh, allowed us to film here today. We're talking with Quentin about his faith journey and also what it looks like to be a Christian Uh, as you work through tragedy, which you do on a regular basis, you are an ER doctor. Yeah, so I can tell you a little bit about myself off the top. So um, I'm uh, married. I have four kids. We just had our uh, fourth child a couple of weeks ago. So it's a big summer for me. And one of the questions I asked you is whether or not you delivered uh, your children. But you said no. Yeah, (laughs) with my first child, my my, uh, older daughter, we had a midwife in Edmonton, which is where we lived then. And she was great. Um, And I think... She thought that she and I had this sort of unspoken agreement that I was going to deliver the baby at the end. And so I will always remember my wife, Kaylin, was sort of about to deliver our daughter. And the midwife looked at me across the bed and said, so are you going to deliver the baby? And I said, oh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, have, I felt like my role in that space is to be there with Kaylin and to... Um, yeah, support and love her as I can in that moment, and then we can celebrate, you know, meeting our child together. So I, I have delivered babies before. I've delivered a few babies in the emergency department, which is always wild, uh, but no, none of my own children, so. Okay. Yeah, and what I do when I'm not uh, hanging out with my kids, my main job is that I'm an emergency doctor. It's something I'm very grateful to do. I love it a lot. I work mostly at St. Paul's, which is the a big tertiary hospital in downtown Vancouver. Uh, and so my practice has uh, a lot of addictions work and uh, with the downtown east side population that I'm really passionate about. Um, I do some, I have a few other jobs on the side too, but the... Let's talk about that though, because one of them 
is with regards to ethics, mm -hmm. which is, I think, really interesting because when you and I first met, uh, I actually found out that not only were you a doctor, but you had done a master's degree at St. Andrews in Scotland mm -hmm. uh, in the area of theology. And so, you know, tell, tell me about that. So how did, how did the ethicist part of your work come in and what role do you play in ethics here in Vancouver? Yeah, this is, um, I often, I so often reflect on how kind the Lord has been to me in my life and uh, how in retrospect things seem so linear and clear to tell a certain story of my life, the story of becoming friends with God and trying to love my neighbor. But in the moment, looking prospectively, sometimes it all feels so muddled and unclear and you're just reacting uh, to things. Um, so I did my undergrad at King's University, which is a Christian university in Edmonton. And I entered my undergrad intending to go to med school, just thinking I was sort of a science-y guy, only gonna do chemistry and physics and uh, those kinds of things to get into med school. But I had to take these mandatory theology and philosophy classes that at that time I saw as annoying and just distracting from my goal-oriented uh, med school journey. But something happened to me there when I was taking those classes and I had some excellent professors. Doug Herring is one name of a theologian who studied there who had a huge impact on my life. Um, people who loved God uh, with their mind um, and that expressed itself as being professors and teaching a theology and philosophy. And so I went through my journey and, and eventually got into med school. And I found in my first couple of years of med school that I so deeply missed those theology and philosophy classes that I had probably complained about so much. And one day I, I used to work at a farmer's market in Edmonton and I ran into Doug Herring, this theology professor I had. And I was telling him that I was feeling restless. I, I liked medicine, I liked physiology. I, I loved the idea of caring for people, but I, I felt like I was missing something. He said, you should just go do a master's degree. And there's these great universities in Scotland and I have some connections there. Um, you should try to see if you can fit it in. So I went to the, uh, well, first of all, I applied without telling them, <laughs> without telling you of it. So I applied and got accepted to this master's degree in theology with some focus on medical ethics. And then I went to the dean of the med school or one of the assistant deans at U of A, and I pitched him this idea that they give me an academic leave of absence uh, to take a year to study theology uh, in Scotland. And they very fortunately were really supportive um, of me doing that. So I took a year off of med school in between my second and third years, moved to Scotland and uh, studied theology again with specific focus on um, the relationship of theological ethics to medical ethics. Which, by the way, what a great place to do it, because uh, St. Andrews has got to be one of the most beautiful campuses I've ever been yeah. to. It's right on the ocean. It's got this beautiful, like, not only geographically beautiful setting, but also just historically rich, mm -hmm. you know, uh, buildings and, and heritage. So that must have been a cool place to live and study. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was such a gift to my life to live in St. Andrews. I didn't drive or step into a car for months. I just had a bike. It's a tiny little town. And I just studied and read and argued about theology with all these other students there. And I again there encountered teachers of theology who were people who deeply loved God um, with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who practiced theology uh, as part of an integrated Christian life. And I think sometimes in my a younger life, I encountered certain kinds of anti-intellectualism in, in some Christian settings and um, people who were maybe suspicious of 
you know, philosophy or academic study because they saw it as potentially degrading or erosive to faith. And at St. Andrews, I just encountered people who are the smartest people I've, <laughs> I've ever met uh, who are so well-read and versed in history. Um, but all of that was a way of loving God. And so they integrated the practice and life of faith uh, with rich, vigorous intellectual work so well. And that was really formative for me. One story I love to tell about that is that the Baptist church I went to there had a number of professors from the university who were, or tier and lecturers at the university who attended that church. And one of the um, gentlemen who, you know, during the week, we would go to St. Mary's, which is the divinity school, and, you know, he would be there lecturing, and all the students would say, you know, think of him as so eminent because he was so brilliant. But on Sunday mornings, he was the first person there setting up the chairs for the church. And they filled up their communion cups manually. So he would stand there and just like pour grape juice into the tiny little cups. And he, he just was serving the church with such joy. And that for him fit very naturally. He didn't see himself as above that in any way because he was a professional theologian. So I love St. Andrews. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. That's what it really looks like, though, doesn't it? Like when you love God and you love people and you're living out your faith, it it looks like serving, right? Yeah. It's, it's not just about, you know, what books have you read, but how do you, how do you live that out day to day? And, and now you're doing that in a unique way in that I think it's interesting that you took this break in medical school to get this, this training that would actually play such a pivotal role in the work that you do as a doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's two things I really want to talk about today, uh, you know, as we go into your story. And one is, you know, how, how do you, how do you live as a Christian in the midst of the chaos of the ER room, right? And you're, you're with people at their, their darkest moment in, in these incredible crises and challenges. And then as well, the ethics that, that play into the work that you do, because you're also, uh, you also wear an ethics hat um, in, in the city. So what's the role that you have there? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think... My master's degree prepared me for what I'm doing now in a way that I could have never anticipated. I think if you would have asked me what I was doing when I was at St. Andrews, I would have said, I don't really know. I don't know how to integrate that I want to be a physician together with studying Athanasius and Bonhoeffer or whatever. But now, so I have this role with Providence Health where I'm a physician ethicist. And so it's, like I said, it's not most of my time. Most of my time is clinically working. Uh, but my job as a physician ethicist is to try to help our organization understand how to pursue the good. And so a lot of that is through teaching, teaching other physicians, and but also teaching other staff who work in our uh, hospital and hospitals and other facilities and ethics, as, as you well know, is basically about pursuing the good and developing and stewarding precise, rich language to describe the good, um, but then applying that um, in very uh, difficult uh, complex and sometimes ambiguous situations. And so uh, on that note, I think this is an important point to highlight, especially that I've seen in my own research, that people need to appreciate that often in a society, the ethical challenges that we're working through at any given moment within a culture, the front lines of that tend to be in medicine. They tend to be our doctors. Mm -hmm. And pursuing the good is such an important question that a doctor needs to be thinking about in that our hospitals need to be working through because that's again that's the that's the front lines but there's kind of two components to that as i see it one is is you have the societal level but then you also have the personal level that you've got to walk through mm -hmm. you know those ethical dilemmas that you're that you're encountering on a on a daily basis yeah 
Totally. And I agree. One thing I really like about having a background in theology and philosophy and studying medical ethics is that everybody agrees that it's relevant. Most people I know who are philosophers, if they try to give an elevator pitch to someone why their degree matters, people people don't agree. You know, they're really into Kant or Nietzsche or Aristotle. Most people aren't that engaged with uh, those thinkers in our time. But someone said to me once that medical ethics saved philosophy from obscurity. Mm. And I think that with respect to much of the popular conversation, that's true, that um, medical ethical questions touch on deep human questions. What is human life? What defines a human being and a human person? What is death? What defines good dying? How do we live well and try to find joy in the midst of a world where there is a horrible suffering? Those are obviously not narrow medical questions, but oftentimes most people engage them, as you say, in medical contexts um, because people often don't think about them until they're forced to um, because the frailty of our bodies leads us to um, engage those questions in the context of sickness. So let's jump into that because this is an important topic uh, of how do you walk through the frailty and the challenges of life. Now, I, I pastored for 20 years dealing with, you know, the, these challenges. And, and now as a pastor, yeah, I encountered quite a bit, but mine was spread out over a long period of time. Whereas yours, I mean, you're dealing with this day in, day out uh, on a regular basis of these incredible, you know, tragic moments. And a question that I get asked quite a bit by people is, how do you walk through that tragedy and not lose yourself, and not lose your faith in the midst of it. And so I've got my own response to that, yeah. but I'm very curious to hear what yours, yours is. So when you're dealing with those just tragic moments and you're seeing the frailty of life over and over again, like how do you walk that as a Christian? Thank you for that question. It's obviously something that's very deeply personal to me. I think the first thing that I want to say is that Medicine is a vocation that involves placing yourself proximate to the suffering of other people continually. And that shares in common that feature with many other vocations, including being a pastor in slightly different ways. Mm -hmm. But the core commitment of a physician is the commitment to be present to someone who is in pain. I cannot cure everyone. I cannot even improve everyone's outcomes. But my core commitment is to be present to that person in that moment with a certain kind of a stance. I think some immature approaches to medicine in our day and age suggest that you can do that without suffering. And they say, you can be proximate to the suffering of others. And if you have a certain kind of professional distance or a certain kind of uh, attitude, you can do that without it affecting yourself. I take that premise as, as false. And I think when I teach medical students and, uh, and even other physicians and colleagues about this issue, I take it as a premise that being proximate to the suffering of other people invites suffering into your life. And there's, there's no sense trying to avoid that. The best thing is to do is to soberly acknowledge that and to actually speak of that using the Christian language of compassion, which literally means co-suffering. Um, and to first and foremost, try to develop the ability to be present to a suffering person without shrinking from them. And this often makes me think of the book of Job, actually, where you know, Job's friends get so much bad rap in our time, and they deserve some of it. But actually, when Job was suffering in a way that was completely inexplicable to them, 
Um, the first thing they did is they went and they sat on the ground with him quietly for seven days. And we have a lot to learn from that. And mm. I don't know that many of us would be able to do that without opening our big mouths and <laughs> trying to pontificate about uh, this or that. Um, so as a basic premise, I would say, as a physician, my responsibility is to be present to the suffering of other people. And that invites suffering into my life. And I think that's such an important point just to highlight is that proximity aspect of it. Because uh, this is something you see in counseling, you know, 101, is what do people need at the end of the day when they're going through brokenness? They, they just need community. They need the relationship. They need you to be in proximity to them. Mm -hmm. They don't need some great, you know, wisdom, you know, or pontificating or whatever it is. They need you. Totally. They need you. But that means that you now have to be in that un uncomfortable position of being with them as they suffer. Yeah. So I have two broad um, thoughts about how I encounter this. My, my first and probably most basic thought um, comes from a bit of uh, The Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. And in The Four Quartets, he says, we only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. And he means it by... It means something slightly different than what I'm using it for, but I still think it uh, applies broadly. And he describes this human condition where we only live by being consumed by a fire or a different fire. Mm. And so for me, when I think about what I do, I take as a premise that I will invite suffering and difficulty into my life by being proximate to those who suffer. And that's worthwhile because God loves those people mm. um, so deeply and God is attentive to them and God cares for the sparrows and the lilies, and how much more does God care for uh, every last person? And so it is an honor for me to be proximate to their suffering, but that invites suffering into my life. And the key question for me is, um, which fire will I be consumed by? Uh, how will I suffer for love? And I think that many people in our time um, prefer to try a stoic answer. They say, grit your teeth, do not feel um, repressed, you, you know, and numb yourself, um, numb yourself uh, as a way of coping. And many people are taught that that is a way of avoiding suffering. But that, in my mind, leads to this condition that people in medicine commonly talk about using the language of burnout or compassion fatigue or even moral distress, where people lose the, they genuinely stop themselves from feeling the bad things, but they then uh, feel unable to feel the good things. They feel profoundly depersonalized and nihilistic um, and cynical and, and sad. Do you think that's where alcohol and drug addiction can come in for different people where they're, they're trying to, or, or different escapes where they're trying to, to not be, feel numb? Yeah, I think certainly like substances are a way when, when people feel like they can't feel anything, using substances can be one way of trying to help themselves feel something again. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I've had conversations with our, you know, some of my colleagues or nursing staff who, who say, I'm dead inside. And they don't say that with emergency medicine sort of black humor, but with like real tragic sober honesty that the, the horrible evil suffering that we see has produced this, this deadening in them that makes them unable to enjoy the, the beauty of the world. And the beauty of our patients, which I think is a critical uh, piece here. So that's one fire. Um, but there's another fire, and that fire is the fire of compassion. And medicine and encountering the suffering of other people can prompt you to this space that's, that's 
deadening, that is a horrible kind of suffering, or it can make you softer. Yeah. And um, that's a, a much more vulnerable place, I think. Um, but allowing yourself to suffer with those who suffer, to, to weep with those who weep, to grieve with those who uh, grieve. Um, and to do that requires disciplines in your life. And for me, those are disciplines of quiet, disciplines of a prayer. Um, I drive through the downtown east side every day on my uh, way to work. And it's a little bit out of my way, but I, that's one of those uh, disciplines of my life on the way to work, to drive down Hastings and to, um, to remember uh, the suffering there, but also the beauty there, how much God loves each of those persons and how much I owe to them. If, if anybody's unfamiliar with Vancouver, we have a street called Hastings, which is a, a couple blocks that is probably some of the worst homelessness that I've uh, ever seen. And I'm from Portland, Oregon. So, uh, you know, we'll often point our fingers at homelessness elsewhere, but Vancouver, man, they got this one street that is just really, really bad. And and that that's interesting, just drive, you know, because there is that temptation to just uh, avoid it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't want to see it. Mm -hmm. But when you do see it and you're making yourself see it, you have to wrestle with it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting you say that, Quentin, because for me, my answer is very similar to yours, actually, mm -hmm. because uh, people ask, oh, how do, you, how do you walk, you know, through tragedy with people? And, and what I have come to, to see is the necessity to see the evil. Right. That, and I, and that, that part of the not taking the numbing route mm -hmm. is to say that evil is real, mm -hmm. that evil is terrible, mm -hmm. and that the world ought not be that way. Yeah. You know, and that makes you want to pursue the good, yeah. right? And, and that, because what I, where I see people lose themselves is when they start to question whether or not there is good and evil, right? right? And, they, and they'll give up on God because the world's so broken. And, and, and I really think that C.S. Lewis was right when he says, well, you know, if you're calling it a crooked line, you know, you must have some idea of a straight line, but where you, you can see people go, oh, I'm just going to get rid of the crooked line, the straight line. And it's just this very nihilistic view yeah. of life. And man, it just becomes a dark Totally. vacuum is whole that you get sucked into and you, yeah. and you would feel dead inside. Totally. Like, I don't feel that encountering suffering tempts me to lose my faith. Like, if anything, it makes me long for the peace and justice of God. That's what it does to me as well. And even I, I think about this with our, like, our patients from the downtown east side um, who are truly wonderful, beautiful people from whom we have so much to learn. And I feel in our society, nobody pays attention to the, to the good and wonderful and beautiful things about them. Mm. And that makes me long for the day of Christ, for the, for the God who is the one who sees them and knows them and loves them. And the, the beautiful gifts of their life, which are so often not recognized um, in our time, there will be a day when those things are, are recognized, when those seeds come to flower. Um, and so in that sense, suffering and tragedy make me deeply sad. And, and I feel like I said that the fire of compassion has made me softer. Like I wouldn't have done this when I started, but now I, I cry with patients. I, I sit and put my arm around them. And um, sometimes I have to stop for a few minutes to, you know, just to recalibrate a bit to be able to do the job that I do. But that doesn't that doesn't challenge my belief in, in the truth of God's goodness. If anything, it, it makes me 
cry out like the psalmist sometimes longing for God's peace and justice. Mm. If we could just back up on your story yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good. But I want to just back up a little bit and ask, how did you become a Christian? So I... And why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm really grateful in that my faith is something that I received. Um, and so my uh, parents are wonderful examples of the faith to me, um, who instilled in me from a very young age that I was a part of the family of God. Mm. Um, and my faith is something I received from them. I received from my from my grandparents, from my older siblings, um, and from many people, teachers and uh, people in my church um, throughout my um, throughout my sort of uh, young age. And I I was listening to a, another podcast actually recently that had Stanley Hauerwas on. And Stanley Hauerwas, for anyone who doesn't know, is, a, is a, a theologian from the United States. I'm a big fan of him. He's an older gentleman. I think he's in his 80s now. But someone asked him why he was a Christian, and he said... I'm kind of surprised to find myself as a Christian, as someone who's, uh, you know, who's uh, later on in life. And he said, because I, I know how sinful I am, but uh, looking back, I've seen that God has made me his friend, uh, almost despite myself. And I, I resonated with that um, very deeply, that um, I know how, how sinful I am. I know that evil exists. I don't have to look at more, you know, out at anyone else. I only have to look in. Yeah. Uh, to know that there is such a thing as as evil, uh, but I am, uh, you know, not not as old as Dan Harawas, but starting to realize that um, by God's grace and not by my doing primarily, um, God has made me His friend. I think that um, as someone who received the faith, there's always a journey, you know, in young adult time. Of did you have moments of doubt? For sure, and I think that. Um, Anybody who says that they don't have haven't had moments of doubt is is, is probably lying. I don't, I don't want to accuse anyone of lying, but um, but I think everyone has has moments of doubt. And um, I actually think doubt's normal. It's yeah, actually healthy. Exactly, and I actually think that part of the credibility of someone's faith is their ability to soberly look their doubts eye to eye yeah. and um, be gentle with themselves in their in their doubts. One of my favorite poems is by a Scottish poet named Robert Crawford. That's called Thread, and the poem is very short, so I'll just say it to you. He says, my faith hangs by a thread. It always has. No sense spending long going over it, wondering, will it snap? Will it go? Is it the wrong kind of faith? Better just to take it and so. And I really like that image that my faith isn't a strong, invincible thing. My, my faith is a small thing that's subject to emotions and fatigue and doubt and uh, all of those human factors. But God knows that about me, and God loves me very deeply. And my weak faith in the strong, immovable reality of Christ um, is a thread that can sow beautiful things. And so um, I think especially in my uh, years as an undergraduate studying theology and philosophy, reading Nietzsche, reading the Grand Inquisitor, um, there were some texts that that really challenged my faith and and caused me to question whether or not, you know, the the evil and suffering that I see in the world is compatible with a God who is light, in whom there's no darkness at all. Um, and yeah, and I wrestled and still wrestle with those questions. And yesterday I was driving down Hastings and I was listening to a, 
a worship song that uh, says, if he, if he blesses the lilies with beauty and splendor, how much more will he clothe you? How much more does he love you? And I looked out my window and I saw a bunch of human beings who mm. were not dressed um, and who were suffering profoundly. And, and there's, there's real angst there and, the, and wrestling um, still. Uh, but I truly believe both intellectually and emotionally that Christianity presents real rigorous answers to those questions and doubts. And most deeply, those answers are a certain kind of presence, which is the revealed presence of God in the person of Jesus. Mm. Speaking of Jesus, uh, have you ever had, have you ever thought like, what would it be like if Jesus was heading to work with me sort of idea? Cause I've often thought, okay, if I'm driving down Hastings, I, I can't help but feel like if Jesus was in the car, I would feel very uncomfortable yeah. with him because I'd be like, he's probably going to do something that's going to make me feel uncomfortable. Totally. He's probably going to want to be like, Hey, Andy, why don't you stop the car? Uh, we got some ministry to do here. Yeah. I'm like, are you, like, you know, are you sure? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. That I sometimes I don't think that Jesus makes us feel as uncomfortable as you totally. probably should. Yeah, I had a um, an encounter with a patient a few weeks ago. Um, there's a gentleman who um, was an interpreter for Canada and Afghanistan, mm. and um, when the situation changed in Afghanistan a year or two ago, whenever that was, he escaped and has been traveling, trying to get to Canada where he has some family. And he arrived one evening. I don't know all the backstory, but he arrived in the Vancouver International Airport and sort of said that he was arriving as a refugee. And he, they were sort of teeing him up for some stuff. But um, all that was given to him initially was a bus ticket and a, a address of a shelter in the downtown east side. Um, so this gentleman who was you know, an engineer from back home who was, you know, uh, coming from a very different culture arrived and was, you know, arrived at this shelter in the downtown east side and was quite shocked by, you know, some of the things that he saw and the, and the drug use and those kinds of things. And so he came to St. Paul's and said, I, I, I don't feel comfortable staying there and, um, and I need another option. And so we were working with our um, our social workers to try to find him something and um, see if we could yeah, find something that worked for him overnight until he had some further support from the refugee services the next day. Um, but I felt in my, in my conscience, this small voice saying like, why, why shouldn't you take him home and let him sleep in your guest bedroom? Um, but I didn't because I felt like, well, that's, that's not my job. And, you know, but I realized like, that's what God has done for me, like uh, adopted me and, and, and I was not just a stranger to God. I was an enemy of God. This man was a stranger to me. But um, God has done all of that and so much more for me. Um, and, and in that sense and in similar stories, I feel like I commit sins of omission every day um, in not doing enough for my patients um, and not offering them gift and not offering them the, the radical love that God loves them with. And... Yeah, and that's a really hard balance with trying to do my job as an emergency doctor and like we have a full waiting room and I have to see patients and and uh, being a father and a husband yeah. and and everything else. Yeah. No, I get it. It's it's challenging and that's part of the, I think that's part of this the struggle of living in a broken world. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question as we as we come in for a, a landing here. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Man, because there's just so many different things that we could talk about. Yeah. And I know we're going to have you back on the podcast because I told you already before we started this. <laughs> okay, we're going to come back because you've done a lot of work in the drug addiction area and with regards to the stuff that's going on with homelessness and everything else. I think it's a big question on people's minds. So we will come back to this question. Uh, Quentin will be back on the podcast. We'll talk more about that. But, uh, you know, one of the questions I want to ask you, though, and I think this is a question a lot of people struggle with, is there's so much going on in our world right now. There's so much brokenness. There's so much to get frustrated and angry about. How do you remain hopeful? Like, you know, how, how, are, you, how are you navigating that? Because, I mean, you are on the front lines. There's so much going on. I mean, even before we started this podcast, I was like, hey, you know, Quentin, we've got this news article that came out and this, this thing came out and this came, came out. I mean, it just, we kind of get bombarded by it. And I think a lot of people, you can either get numb mm -hmm. Or, or just seriously depressed, right? Yeah. Just, just uh, wondering, you know, how, how, again, how do I stay hopeful? So how, how are you remaining hopeful in the midst of all this? I would say the first uh, answer is that um, beauty gives me hope. Uh, the beauty of the world, but the beauty that is expressed in each person uh, as a image bearer of God. Um, one of the... One, probably the most important story from, that I could tell from my work at St. Paul's is that at one time I was, um, the triage nurse came and talked to me and he said, this, this guy just came and registered and he's like making all these weird movements. He's super disorganized. I don't know what he wants. He's making all the other patients uncomfortable. Can you go see him right away? Because we don't really know what's going on. And I walked out to the waiting room at St. Paul's and uh, there was this gentleman sitting right in the middle and all the other patients had made a wide buffer zone around him. <laughs> And he was sitting in the chair and he was like rocking back and forth and mumbling to himself and um, flailing his arms and, and, uh, and he smelled bad and his hair was matted and he was disheveled. Um, and when I sat beside him and I had looked at his chart, I saw that he had a history of addiction to, to meth and that he had expressed previously that he was trying to, trying to stop using. And when I sat beside him and I put my hand on his shoulder and I leaned forward to tell him who I was, and in that sort of second, I just listened to what he was saying, and I realized that he was praying. Um, and he was saying to himself over and over again, dear Jesus, I don't need meth. Dear Jesus, I don't need meth. I don't need meth. I don't need meth. And I was so moved by the, the power of his prayer. And it was such a reminder to me of someone who would be so easy to overlook uh, and who, um, yeah, who presented in a way that was unnerving to the people around him, but um, was an example of beauty to me. And he is not someone I should look down on. He's someone I should look up to uh, in the uh, intensity and perseverance of his prayer. And so for people who feel defeated or uh, afraid because of whatever is going on in their life or the world or, or society, I'd say that the first hope is to, to look at your neighbors and, and the people around you and the people who God has put in your life and uh, see and try to enjoy the, the beauty that is there. And the second thing I would say, which is probably the, uh, the most important answer, is that underneath all forms of other forms of causality is the goodness of God and um, the grace of God and whatever direction our society or our civilization goes, there is a solid rock that uh, even on the downtown east side, all tears will be wiped away. Um, mm -hmm. Even on the downtown east side, all will be well and all manner of thing will be well. And 
uh, we should, you know, the, the Stoics of antiquity said, you know, stiff upper lip, do not laugh, do not weep, just bear it. And Jesus says, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, suffer with those who suffer, but do so in good cheer, knowing that a day of hope is coming, a day of peace is coming. We mourn, but we mourn with hope. Yeah. yeah. Hey, thank you so much, man, for being a part of the podcast. Uh, I really have appreciated our time together, getting to know you, and just uh, your insights today has been really meaningful. Uh, we look forward to having you back on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's great uh, for me to have the opportunity, and I like to talk, so <laughs> I'm always happy to talk more. Speaking of liking to talk, he'll be at the Apologetics Canada Conference coming here in, in March 2024. Uh, I'm sure we'll see him around with AC sooner, uh, and we'll be back on the podcast. Thank you again for listening to the AC Podcast, Ministry of Apologetics Canada. We'll be back next time with more things to think about. Until then, love God, love people. Bye for now.